The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank, the bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life, a bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify, a bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers, that is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose, Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I'll let you in on the dirtiest of my dirty little secrets. I was born in 1967, which gave me an enormous leg up compared to those who followed me. To give you an example, my wife and I bought our first home in 1992 for $112,000. The deposit, which was around about 30%, we were able to save within a couple of years. And even then, got a little bit of help from our mums and dads. But it was relatively easy. That same house, although we don't own it still, is now worth $1.4 million. In fact, it's not so much the house, hasn't really changed much at all. It's the land under the house, which is worth that money. I did nothing to earn that money, but the small deposit that we put in for thirty or $40,000 is, of course, now worth a lot, lot more for no good reason. Now, of course, for someone to buy that same house would mean having to save more than $300,000, more than two to three years of their full income, assuming they were able to save their full income. 20, 30, 40 years to save a deposit for that. How did we get into this situation and how do we get ourselves out? Well, of course, we need to build an awful lot more homes and change the way that houses have become an investment rather than a place to live. But there are people trying to solve this issue with leverage, effectively trying to reduce the scale of the deposit needed and speed up the time it takes to get there. Now, this is partly because in 2013, the Reserve Bank brought in the loan-to-value ratio controls, which reduced the amount of leverage that particularly first home buyers, but also rental property investors, can pump into the value of a home. So where previously some people were able to borrow 95 even 100% of the value of the home, and then often take out an interest-only loan, the Reserve Bank crunched that down. And now the standard is a 20% deposit for a first home buyer and 30% or even more for a rental property investor. 
And that's because interest rates fell quite sharply through the 2000s and into 2021. Now, of course, they're up again now, and it costs a lot more to service a mortgage. But for a lot of people, the real issue actually is getting the deposit. This week, we speak to Derek Handley, who is a tech entrepreneur who's jumped into this area of trying to help people get into their first home by helping them get a deposit faster and allowing others to invest with that first home buyer in a home. This is something that is starting to uh, slip into the market. We've seen it in a way with state backing, with the Kainga Ora uh, first home scheme in which there's effectively a co-investment by the state. Uh, Kiwi Bank also has its co-owned product in which uh, Kiwi Bank uh, allows people who are family and friends to chip in with the deposit. But this is something different. Derek Handley is talking about a financial product called ERA, A-E-R-A, in which people put money into a uh, deposit accelerator into non-bank accounts to increase their savings faster, and then a ownership accelerator fund uh, that is made up of professional investors, uh, managed funds, and wholesale investors chip in like mum and dad to add to the deposit to bring it up to 20%. That second part of the uh, project isn't completed yet, But in this week's When the Facts Change, I talk with Derek Handley about what he's planning and, more broadly, about this issue with very high deposits. Look, kia ora, and welcome to Derek Handley. Derek, great to see you. Great to see you too. Now, tell us about a new index which looks at the issue of uh, first-home buyers and how much of a deposit they need, and that addresses a a particular problem we have. It's the ERA Time to Deposit Index. Could you tell us about that? Sure. We released on the weekend a report that looked at where we are at in the uh, market in terms of people saving for a first home, and based on a certain set of assumptions, which are modelled on current kind of incumbent assumptions, how long would it take to save for an average first home, if you had a median household income and you saved 15% of that before tax uh, every year. And we use those three things because that's what's used in the current indexes that are constantly in the media and regularly publicized as showing that that year time to deposit is about nine to 10 years. The reason or one of the reasons why we produced this was because we felt really uncomfortable that those indices did not account for several moving things, the most important being house prices grow. So if you set your time to deposit based on the deposit you need today, uh, you know, November 2023, and that might take you eight, nine, 10 years to get to, it's hallucinating in terms of what you actually need, because by then, it's almost certainly going to be significantly more than that, but it's most likely going to be double. And so that's one of the first things we wanted to illustrate that if you painted this picture, what actually happened and how long does it take based on these assumptions? And we arrived at uh, infinity. Like you can't catch up with that scale of growth based on those assumptions. If you've got your money growing in the bank at four and a half percent, if your income grows two and a half percent a year, like the labor cost index uh, accounts for, and those certain things are met, reaching an average house, uh, 20% deposit is really, really almost impossible. 
based on those assumptions. And you've done it for both a national measure and an Auckland measure. What did you find for those two? We found pretty much the same uh, on the uh, uh, the average house price. And um, when you that's because the average house price of the national is lower, but also the median income is lower. So uh, you have those two at play. Surprisingly, we found that the uh, growth rate on the national house price since uh, the beginning of this century is actually higher than Auckland, which we didn't expect. So it's 6.8 versus 6.4. So that also kind of, you know, strips, uh, paces, outpaces the um, saver. So first home savers have a very, very challenging and difficult um, path. And they also have a narrative that's not, it's been popularized, it's not helpful. So first of all, we did this because we tried to mirror what was currently there. We don't even think the average house price is what you should be targeting as a first home saver because it's just so ridiculous. Should be going after a median or a different, like a very entry level home to actually just create a realistic plan. And uh, that's the, I wanted, another thing that we wanted to highlight. So uh, that um, those assumptions are, um, as I understand them, uh, that um, a, a couple with a household income is uh, going to be able to save 15% of that household income before tax and that the returns from the term deposit, if they were doing it in the conventional normal way, is 4.5%, and that um, depending on whether you're looking nationally or in Auckland, uh, the uh, the average house price growth uh, for, nas- for national was um, 6. 85%. Uh, How did you come up with that number, that 6.85%? That one we just took off the uh, Real Estate Institute of New Zealand's index. So we took all the numbers, again, the same source numbers from the current incumbent reports. We didn't invent any new numbers. Uh, we got the savings rate as being the average savings rate on a six-month deposit from RBNZ over the same period. So basically since the beginning of this, uh, of this century. So we kind of used everything to be matched to uh, January 2000 up till uh, June 2023. And also the growth in people's incomes, uh, because, uh, as you rightly say, um, uh, things change, not just the house prices, uh, but also incomes, 2.33%. You've used the labour cost index. And um, you mentioned infinity as the time it, <laughs> time it takes to uh, get your deposit. But it, uh, you, you could get there in theory if you just kept going for 20 or 30 years. Is that right? No, the chart doesn't ever meet. I think, I, I mean, it doesn't ever meet. I think we've done in the report, it like goes out 30 something years and it doesn't get there. Of course, you could get there if you saved faster, you saved in higher uh, return accounts, which is obviously one of the things Air is focusing on. You didn't target an average priced house and you targeted a much lower priced house. So you have to change these levers to uh, get there. Obviously, if you got lots of promotions and earned lots of money, uh, uh, more than the median household income growing at you know uh, the, the labor cost index, but that assumes you're starting at the median. So if you're not starting at the median and you're a grad or you're you know four or five years out and you're earning half the median, well, you're already way behind. So there's so many levers you could pull and push to figure out what what actually uh, is possible. But what we wanted to do was take a, like a photograph of here's how people have talked about it to date. Let's add in house price appreciation. Let's add in income appreciation. Let's add in some savings. So we balance it on both sides because the current models don't incorporate the other two things that are positives either, which is your savings do grow. They don't just sit there. And also your income should grow. You pull those things together. Yeah, it's infinity. 
So one of the measures used was for Auckland, and you talked about by year 22, the deposit being required of a million dollars, and that even with the if you were saving it with that 4.5% return, um, you, you wouldn't quite get there, that million dollars by 2043. What is the solution that you, you think you could uh, put together to uh, to this problem of, you know, it taking not just an awful long time, but pretty much being impossible to save for a deposit for an average-sized house on an income which is uh, an average household income? I think there's uh, several different ways to think about it. One is changing those levers to create a plan that uh, somehow you could find your way to saving uh, the amount required over 10 or 15 years. Um, so with those same assumptions, if you were targeting a median, ha- a median house price, uh, it would be around 14 to 15 years. Okay, So you could kind of follow that path and, and then get there for a median house price in that time, assuming those conditions stay the same. The thing that we think is more transformative that I think is going to change the landscape is basically people realizing that it's probably going to be beneficial to get a third party to support them into the deposit, as well as expanding their view on how they save for uh, their deposits. Because most people use their KiwiSaver or their super fund, and then they use cash account, uh, bank account term deposits. That's how the psychology is of a first home saver. And yes, they shouldn't be in volatile uh, assets, or they shouldn't be picking their shares, all those kind of things. I really don't believe they should be doing that. But from my experience in doing different things in finance, there are lots of other asset classes that they can be in that they should be able to be exposed to that can outpace the 6.8 and at least keep them closer. And so we've started ERA with a raft of fixed income products, uh, which are the beginning, you know, the beginnings of that journey. But we think we can create a whole range of products that are not usually available to first-home savers that can get them significantly higher returns you know, up eight, nine, up into the, the teens, which really wealthy people have been using for a very long time. And so part of this mission that we're on is to democratize access to some of these savings uh, products that really first-home savers, savers should be using and also have a plan on how to use because the time horizon for you know saving is, is years, not not months. Okay, so uh, ERA is uh, is launching. Um, and could you explain how a first home buyer would use ERA to shorten that gap uh, between starting saving and and buying their own home? So there's two sides. The first thing that's been live uh, for a little while is the de- deposit accelerator. So that's basically this idea of accelerating your rate of growth for deposit. You know, people always talk about first-home buyers, and that's really the the main phrase in the media. And the thing that we want to draw attention to is, well, before you can even be a first-home buyer and lose out at auction, you need to be a first-home saver. And that journey itself is really long, and it should have better help, better guidance, more of a plan as to how you do it. But because there's no money in helping a first-home saver, um, there's no one really helping them. So ERA plans to build out a whole set of advisory and support services for those people in addition to the different savings accounts, the first things we've launched are these higher return, uh, higher target targeting return uh, savings products, which, as I mentioned, are in fixed income. So we have products that are six and a half, seven percent cash and and uh, fixed income products. And so to start with, to be saving actively in a higher return product is going to at least mean you're going less backwards. Um, and as we as we grow and early in the new year, expanding that range and putting in putting people into um, even better better asset classes is the plan to start with. 
secondly, uh, later, uh, not quite sure when, but hopefully before the end of the year, we'll be launching service, which we call the Ownership Accelerator, which is where ERA will basically step in like the bank of mum and dad for people who don't have the bank of mum and dad. So if you've saved 10%, we would contribute the 10% and we would invest in the house alongside you. And this kind of um, support a layer, I think, is an indication of where how you buy a house is going. So there's three parties in the equation over the long run. There's your money, there's someone else giving you support, and then there's the main bank, which gives you the 80% on top. And so we're, I guess, at the vanguard of that movement. So the way it would work, as I understand it, is that um, you put money into the deposit accelerator, and let's say you choose the 90-day option, uh, which you're offering 7% on, and um, you build that up to perhaps to the point where you get to a deposit of 2.5% on a home, may not be the, the average home or even the median home, and then ERA and the people who've put money into the ownership accelerator, which is separate from the deposit accelerator, and these would be uh, wholesale um, investment funds, wholesale investors, they would put up the other, let's say, 17.5%, so you get to a collective 20% deposit, and then a bank would lend the remaining 80%. Is that right? Exactly. And 2.5%... Uh, you know, for us in that realm, you'd have to be earning a good amount of money and going for a lower house because you'd be paying it off much faster or you're starting your relationship with us at the savings account and then we create a plan where you're quickly up to five or something like that and then you're then we move into that and, you know, move you into the ownership product. But you've described it pretty much uh, correctly. And what we found, you know, being a, uh, kind of in a private beta for the last few months and having um, several thousand people kind of apply on the on the I guess early access list is most people have more than that they don't they don't have two and a half they have seven five twelve the problem is getting to the twenty and so in all reality I think most of these uh, instances are going to be something like they've got eight we put twelve they've got thirteen we put seven I don't think it's going to be the uh, kind of I've got a sliver and then we you know we put it over the uh, put put in um, like eighteen percent. So the current model we have at the moment is um, a couple, uh, a a couple of earners put up a 20% deposit typically, although there are some loans that people can get for uh, with a deposit of less than 20%, but the Reserve Bank has limited the uh, proportion of new lending that can go out in that sub-20% range. So most people have to have a 20% deposit, as you say. But the way that it way that it works is that the bank lends you the other 80% and is very clear about who owns the house and has put a mortgage on the title for the house and is very confident that if there was a problem, let's say someone lost their job or a relationship broke down or someone got sick, they essentially have a relationship, a direct and full relationship with the owner of that home. And if the worst came to the worst and uh, they couldn't get a repayment on the loan or the interest wasn't being paid or there was clearly a breakdown, they would be able to, because they have a mortgage on the title and it's uh, a very clear freehold title, they'd be able to essentially take the home and land and sell it and get their money back. 
But could you explain for us um, how that would work if the homeowner has, let's say, somewhere between 25 and 20% and some other party, the ERA ownership accelerator investors, have, uh, in effect, an interest in that other part of the 20%. How do the banks, how would the banks be confident about that and be sure about the, you know, the clarity of the legal relationship and about getting their money back? Well, obviously, when you're doing anything new, these are the, the challenges that you're kind of wading through. So this is all uh, what's being worked through at the moment. And the basic premise of why we're doing this is we believe this is a, uh, a macro shift. And so if we believe that and we're convinced of that, we have conviction, then we believe that people who lend, in other words, the banks and other kind of um, uh, lenders for homes, will also appreciate that this is something that will need to happen and, and evolve over time. And so there'll be, like everything, some early adopters who are happy to partner with uh, people like us, and there'll be others who will want to wait and watch uh, on the sidelines. Although we have some precedent in New Zealand, obviously it's a different thing because it's the government, but the government has been a co-owner of houses through their first home partners product, which they uh, changed some settings on a few months ago and then were overwhelmed by demand and then have shut it down because they've got no more money you know, to support it. So the demand we know is there. Some of the banks that supported it have been live with the product that has a similar characteristic where there's two owners in the title. And the Kiwi Bank co-owned product, which they've been launching and marketing, is similar. It's facilitating a organized way for multiple people to own the house, but normally family and friends. So you can see we're at the beginning of people really thinking about this, this model as being this kind of three-layered cake, I kind of describe it as. And you know, I'm not inventing anything new at all. We looked all around the world at what was going on and what was happening in different markets that had these same challenges. And there are a prol- proliferation of these kinds of things happening um, at this, I guess, third level uh, of the 20% or third slice. I can see how the banks would be confident in getting their money back, if you like, from the government, which has the ability to force people to pay it money through taxes. Have there been other successful um, models like this, co-ownership type models elsewhere? Yeah, there have been a number of them around the world, and they often start actually at the other end of the spectrum, where a retiree has a house and they don't have enough income. And so the product innovation has started, I think if you go back in time, at helping unlock capital for a, a homeowner who actually is lacking income but actually has all of the house. And so it's exactly the same uh, tool, it's the same mechanism, basically. Someone gives you money, they then have an interest in the house, you can then live off that money in retirement, and then you pay them back by selling the house or, or whatever when something happens. So it's the same structure, and those are uh, what's been proven out elsewhere. And now those same things are being applied for the other side of the equation, which is uh, the first-time saver journey you know, in the, in the UK, um, in Vietnam, in the US, um, there's a variety of countries that have now, uh, mostly in cities, pioneering these, you know, these kinds of things. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. 
Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. So uh, the deposit accelerator, the Aero deposit accelerator is up and running. Tell us about where you are with the ownership accelerator and what's needed to to start that. Yeah, the the deposit accelerator is is up and running and has been for a little while. And it's also important that, like, it's not just for people who can't save the deposit. So we've had people uh, use it in the lead up to actually just converting into a normal mortgage because they're like, okay, this is a good product to have a higher return. I've already got my, I'm almost at my 20% but actually this is the best place for the funds. So essentially it's we're building out uh, a suite that's for first-time savers. It doesn't matter whether they are the ones who are handicapped on the deposit or they're actually going to be doing it traditional way. They should still be in a better asset class, and that's what we've started, the, just the very beginning. The Ownership Accelerator has had a lot of work uh, to prepare it, and we've also had a lot of pre-applicants uh, over the last couple of months, and we're just basically waiting for the the key partners that we need to go live to be all lined up. And, you know, my hope has always been to get the first families, you know, their first uh, keys to their first home over the summer. So if things go right, right then that, that should happen. But as we you know, nothing ever goes to plan. So it may not, it may not happen to me maybe at the end of the summer, but that's the goal. And I think everyone that's involved and that's working with us at the moment is on the same page with that. So hopefully we get there. And so how do they get a return on their investment, these uh, partners, the, the wholesale investment funds, um, and what sort of returns are they getting on their investment? Well, the banks will obviously get their standard, you know, if you're lending on the 80%, you're basically doing whatever that customer credit profile warrants in terms of the return profile of how much they should be paying for that mortgage. On the slice that we facilitate to top up the deposit, those things are all still being finalised in terms of the actual return rates and the equity share that ERA would facilitate you know, of the house growth price. And those things will be revealed when we go live, as I said, hopefully before summer. And then it will kind of you know, all be able to be looked at in the, in, in the sunlight. So just, just to be clear, the Ownership Accelerator uh, is money that's invested with the homeowner in the home as equity, and, and as the equity grows, um, the Ownership Accelerator will take some share of that equity growth. Are they also expecting some sort of you know, interest return or some sort of you know, convertible bond yield type thing? 
Yes, your first point, yes. So the idea is that ERA is a passive investor in the house to get you to 20%. The idea is that you buy that share back out over time, ideally as fast as you're able to. Uh, if you believe you know house prices continue to rise, then you'd want us out as an owner. And as you do that, then the share that we take continually declines. So the more you own the house, then the, the, the less uh, error takes of the upside. In terms of uh, interest and things like that, so if it was interest-bearing, then it would be a loan, and then that would increase the LVR, and then that would create a whole other set of problems, and it would also be a triple CFA product and all these other things. So the, I know your audience probably knows what those things are, but basically it would then move into a whole other territory, which is what we don't want to be. We don't want to be in that world because that's basically highly leveraged houses, and we're more saying, actually, no, we believe in the long run and to support these people into the houses, and therefore we're equity, and we're not going to be charging interest. So if you were being charged interest on our slice and the 80%, actually, with these current test rates, I don't think that many people could even do it. And also, we wouldn't want to do it, and the banks wouldn't do it, and it would be a non-starter anyway. So no, we're just a passive equity uh, investor, just like I'm guessing most parents are, uh, except there's a commercial out- outcome on the equity upside because we're not, you know, we're not a nonprofit. We're not the government. We can't just give money away. We need to make it work for investors in order to then help the next family. And so it has to work in a circular way that there's enough working for everybody that we can just do it over and over again for those who don't have the bank of mum and dad. So how does the ownership accelerator, you know, achieve their returns? Uh, let's say I buy the house it's for a family and we stay in it for 30 years. Are you guys going to wait for that 30 years until we sell the house and crystallize the equity gain? Well, those details are going to be out soon, Bernard. You're really pushing the buttons here. Hmm. Um, there'll be a spectrum of how to address that. Right. Uh, there'll be certain timelines as to what we uh, think are reasonable. But yeah, we can't really can't really share it until we share the whole story because otherwise people get a bit of the story and they don't quite, you know, can't, ah, can't okay. piece it all sure. together. But we are thinking about yeah, how does it work over the long run. Let's put it this way, though. To begin with, we are prioritizing people who look like they could have a roadmap to buy the error piece out within three to seven years. All right. So we are prioritizing people who, okay, I have the commitment and the goal to work to full ownership. But I do believe uh, in the long run, it's going to be, and this is maybe kind of too much to say at the moment, but I do believe in the long run, it's going to be perfectly normal for someone to live their entire life with having someone have a small portion of their house the whole way through like you just described. And if that means that someone can have the majority of the house and they can live in it and they can be in a community and their kids can go to school and they can grow old there, I think that's a better way to own the home than not being able to own it at all or being a a permanent renter. But we're a long way from that. But I do think that that is ultimately somewhere we could end up. And you might have a Swedish pension fund that owns 6% of your house and they don't want the money back. They just want to know that they've got, you know, exposure to some some real estate and they're happy for you to live there forever. So that's somewhere where I, I do believe we, we could end up over the coming decades. Do you need any sort of regulatory approval to launch the ownership uh, accelerator or, or start to do um, uh, these sorts of um, house purchases and, and agreements? Well, obviously, we have to be constantly operating within the Financial Markets Authority guidelines, anything to do with the Reserve Reserve Bank, even using the word bank, everything, we're very, very careful about it. But being a co-investor in a house uh, is, I think, quite straightforward in terms of the regulation. If we veered into the territory where it looked like a loan, or we were charging interest, or all those kinds of things, it's a very different set of issues. And we're 
deliberately steering well clear of that because it's not where we want to be. So if we were doing that, then we would have a set of regulations and responsibilities that are very different to the ones that we have now. Having said that, we do look at every single person in this whole process as are they fit and ready and or- oriented towards you know buying a house? And obviously, there has to be someone in the a financial advisor in the middle that's uh, brokering the loan and all these kind of things. So, looking at their whole picture is still really, really important to be responsible because we want people to succeed. We want people to get in the house, buy it back out, and own it outright, and probably sell it and buy another one. I think that's probably going to happen because you're going to buy a small one as your starter home, as your first home. It's not your perfect home, but at least you're in it and you can move on and upgrade. You know, when you have a family or something like that. And just more broadly, though, you make the point that uh, if house prices keep rising at the rate they have for the last 30 years, that um, it'll be pretty much impossible to uh, save a deposit under your own steam, essentially do it without the help of friends or family or a a helpful lotto win. Or an average house. Yeah. But isn't that perfectly sustainable if we just assume that for a lot of people, particularly the ones born in the last 20 or 30 years, we just assume they're always going to be renters and that they're not going to have access to the um, capital gains from from housing. They just weren't lucky enough to be born early and this is a perfectly normal and sustainable thing. Why, why should anything change? So I think that is fair if you're in a country that has reasonable rental stock to support the majority of the country living their lives out in rentals. So I looked at this issue from all the different angles for a long time before deciding to build this company because it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is house prices. I don't solve that problem. This doesn't solve this problem. I'm solving financing your way into your first home because I see that that's a generational issue that I don't, I think it's going to get worse and worse based on the current situation. So if in a dream world, people could rent their way to their retirement, I think that's a perfectly acceptable way to live. If you then have an amazingly disciplined and well-organized way to save for your retirement. So we're in a bit of a pickle in New Zealand because we're in both situations. We have shit rental stock, no real long-term institutional landlords. Obviously, they're coming. They're like the white knights coming on the horse, actually coming on like the turtles because it's going to take them 20 years to build the stock. Absolutely right. You get hundreds and hundreds a year, but they're not going to get to the tens of thousands for decades. And at the same time, we've got a really immature retirement savings culture, and we're only just learning how to save, period, let alone how to save for our retirement 30, 40, 50 years down the track because we know that superannuation uh, will barely pay the groceries or you know the power bills. So if we were sitting here and we had this really sophisticated retirement culture and everyone was very disciplined about how they saved and when they rented, they then used that extra money they might have been using for the mortgage to actually pile away into money to build that nest egg from the very beginning. And there was an amazing rental culture where there was beautiful places to live and rent and never be worried about being kicked out like there are in many parts of the world, whether it's Germany or even you know Hong Kong. There's other places where you can just rent and be a renter. That is not our reality, unfortunately, in New Zealand. As you know, every single house in New Zealand is owned by basically someone who kind of looks like us, like it's just a person. They own three or four houses. And so we're in this situation where maybe it will take us one or two generations to move towards a place that's sustainable, where we've built a huge amount of rental stock, where we've figured out how to make houses cheaper. But everywhere I look, those problems are a generation to fix. 
if someone is committed to fixing them. Now we see glimmers of hope on the uh, build to rent stuff. That looks like people are starting to take that seriously. Will anyone ever do anything about the building monopoly to look at the product and the expense of that? Will we ever be comfortable building different types of houses so they don't cost so much? They're like all custom built every single house kind of thing. Will we be happy with more affordable ways of building? Will we ever stop people moving to New Zealand in their droves? I mean, those kinds of things. Some of them, I look at them and I go, New Zealand just becomes more and more attractive to live over the next few years as the world gets more and more crazy. So you're 110,000 this year. Who knows what it's going to be next year? Maybe it's going to be 100,000 every year. We need the doctors. We need the teachers. So it's this horrible, wicked problem that is way above my pay grade. But every angle I looked at it, I was like, shit, I don't know anything about this. I can't figure this out. Okay, but I can figure some other way for someone to get their first foot on the first rung of the small first house, and hopefully they're away. On at least, and I, and I don't think that solves it for everybody at all, but maybe if it solves it for some. And I guess that's what we're focused on. Because as you say, this is a problem not just in New Zealand, and if someone was able to solve it here, that they might be able to do it overseas. But um, one of the reasons we're in this situation is that um, we, most people can't you know, leverage up to 95 or 99%, um, in large part because of the Reserve Bank's uh, loan-to-value ratio restrictions put in place in 2013 and very briefly dropped during COVID and put back, put back on. Isn't, isn't there a risk here that if you're successful and you manage to, you know, uh, have a bunch of people uh, buy homes effectively with smaller deposits than the 20% the Reserve Bank would like, that the Reserve Bank just jumps in and says to the banks, stop helping this guy to pump up the market with more leverage? I think, you know, any, anything and everything is a risk. I guess we're building, we're putting more equity into the system. So that's how I would respond. But yeah, if you, you play this all forward, I think... The other parts of the system need to do their work too. We need to find ways to build rental. We need to find ways to build houses cheaper. We need to find ways to build houses before they're needed, or at least in tandem with when they're needed. But someone asked me this the other day, like, what would you tell the new government to do? And I'm like, wow, if I could tell them, how, I'd be the, like, be genius. I don't know. There's just so many things you need to do. So I guess what people probably need to do is take it far more seriously as a systemic problem than is currently really being taken. I think maybe you're one of the few people that really does take it seriously and are really deeply concerned about it. And I and I guess I am as well. And that's why I've come at it from this angle, because like, well, this is something I can do. Well, I thought I found interesting about the uh, ERA index and what you're doing here is essentially you're making it very, very plain to everyone. And it's sort of something we knew in our bones anyway, but to have the mathematics laid out so clearly. And it essentially calls bullshit on this idea that uh, you can realistically still, um, you know, work hard, save hard, buy a house for your family in time to start a family before you can't have kids anymore. And and this is a realistic thing to, to think about in New Zealand. And we don't need to change that much because not much is broken. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, obviously, I'm a kind of person that thinks you set a goal, you know, if it's realistic and you, oh, it's not realistic, but if it's a stretch goal, you can you, you can achieve anything you set your mind to. Right? I still believe that. But for the base case, I think what you said is right. Now, there's all sorts of ways you can find a way to make it work in some fashion. But the real thing is this generalist base case, you know, the picture perfect first home that you can get there in 10 years by doing this. Absolutely. It's bullshit. It doesn't make any sense. 
So what I guess part of this is like blowing that narrative up and saying, re-look at the thing. And if you want a home, because m- many people might decide this is just not, uh, screw it, I'm going to go and make money in Australia or the UK and maybe I'll come back and get one. But if you want one and if you have planned to, to have one and it's not now, like it's in seven, five years, five or seven years, really rethink how you're going to get there. And I guess our role is to help people understand that, make a plan, get there if they can. Because if you just mosey along and, hum, you know, just wander along and think it's going to happen, I think then definitely it will never happen. You, we need to pull all different levers on the personal level. We were talking about the system before. But on a personal level, if you're serious about it, you need to pull all the levers because they all count. And I guess people could say, what's the difference between, you know, 5% of the bank and 7% of the bank? Well, numbers, it doesn't sound very much, but it all adds up because you're in a race against something that's moving away at 7% away, uh, 7% a year. So every little bit counts. And having a mindset that is just, wow, okay, uh, I just can't just like squirrel away this money for 10 years and I'm going to get there because it's just going to disappoint so many people by the time they get there. They're like, you guys told me if I did this, I would get here. And I'm basically putting, you know, pulling up the flag saying, don't listen to them. Dara Candy, thank you very much for uh, coming on and um, uh, talking about ERA, uh, which uh, is being launched. And I'm keen to keep in touch with uh, the further announcements about uh, ERA and in particular the Ownership Accelerator. Thank you very much. We'll bring that to our our, our readers and, and listeners um, once, once you've got more to say on that. Thank you very much, Derek. Thanks, Bernard. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te Kia Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.